I want to welcome those of you that are watching us online as well. It's our prayer that God would speak to you. The title of our message today, we have two of them. One of them is, What Does It Mean to Repent? So we want to talk about what repentance is. And there's some controversy today within the evangelical church as to what repentance is. Some people believing that it is more of a work and some people believing that it is a strong decision to change. And we're going to talk about that as we get into this. But I've got a second title as well. What does it mean to repent? And should Christians repent regularly or daily? Should repentance be a part of our lives when we realize there's something that I'm doing that's wrong when the Holy Spirit... And, and remember, you, you, might, you might hear this and you might go, mm, I don't really have anything wrong in my life. But the Bible says that there are hidden faults that have dominion over us. Is it possible that I have a hidden fault right now in my life that God would convict me, convince me that, it, that I have a fault and lead me down the road of repentance? You bet. Uh, also, sin is deceptive. Sometimes we can feel like, you know, we justify sin. And, and, you know, you can justify sin in your mind. And sometimes when you speak it out loud, you realize how crazy it is that you justify sin in that way. But hearing the way that people will justify sin at times, and just because it is deceptive, and maybe God needs to speak to us today about the need for some of us here uh, to repent. Or, or maybe just the desire that we need to repent daily. Now, this comes out of a very interesting passage where Jesus hears something in Luke chapter 13 that is outrageous. It's just outrageous that he hears it. And his response is shocking because he doesn't respond to the outrage, which is interesting. In fact, this outrageous statement that someone tells him has everything in it, if it happened in our day, to be a viral post. You could read it and go, if I post this, people are going to be upset. And if you could get people angry, then they're going to like it. They're going to share it, right? They're going to send it out there. And there are so many posts today that are just outrageous things. Some of them are lies. Some of them are, are not real. I was outside working in my garage when a, when a friend of Kathy's came over and she stopped and she said, um, and I can't remember the, the rock and roller who's an who's a avid hunter. Um, I, Ted, Ted Nugent. All right. So I always want to call him Eric Clapton for some reason. Uh, but Ted Nugent. So she said to me, did you hear Ted Nugent died? And I said, no, I didn't hear that. She goes, yeah, he got, he got shot with a bow and arrow. And I was like, well, that's weird because he's really into, you know, archery. He's really into archery hunting. That's really weird that he would be shot that way. And then I said, is it true? And she said, oh yeah, I read it on Facebook. I said, ha, ha. Come to find out it wasn't true. It had plenty of outrage. It had everything in it anti-hunters wanted. This guy here is a big hunter and he, gets, he got shot. He was up in a blind and somebody shot him and it had everything, but it wasn't true at all. So Jesus hears an outrageous story and I'm not suggesting this isn't true because it was true. But out of this outrageous story, Jesus gets to, you should repent. The people bringing the outrageous story, he gets to the place where he says you should repent. And it's not necessarily the way you might think he gets there. So let's pick it up. We pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 13. Here's the outrage. There were present at that season some who told him about Galileans. Jesus ministered in the Galilee. That's where he started his ministry. He would die in Jerusalem. But for three years, his circuit would be in the Galilee. They were, there were present some of them who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
So these Galileans had made a trip to Jerusalem to give their offerings. There had been, and, and there were several riots during the days of Pilate that Pilate quelled by killing people. And so th during one of these events, they had their sacrifices with them and the Galileans were killed and their, their sacrifices were killed and their blood mixed with the sacrifice. To a Jewish mindset, this was outrageous. To Galileans, that Galileans should be treated such a way would be outrageous. It's got everything you need. You've got a, a, a political leader. You've got Pilate who kills these Galileans and mingles their blood. And it's a perfect opportunity for Jesus to get political. But he doesn't. It's not the only place that Jesus doesn't get political. There's another opportunity for him to do it when they tried to trap him saying, should we pay taxes? The trap was this. If he said, yes, we should pay taxes, the people were obviously anti-tax. They did not want to pay taxes to Rome. They felt like Rome was oppressive. The average person, if, you, if Jesus were a politician that put his finger to the wind and said, how should I answer this? He would have said, no, we should not pay taxes to Rome because that's what politicians do. But Jesus wasn't a politician. So Jesus said, give me a coin. And he held it up. He said, whose face is on the coin? They said, Caesar's. And he said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. Now, very, very, very briefly, I'm not saying you should not be political. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm not saying you shouldn't be involved in campaigns or if there is a, a particular topic that a certain candidate that you want to see elected really stands for the topic that you're talking about that you shouldn't be involved in it. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying Jesus knew why he came. He knew that the important thing was getting people to repent, not being political. You and I, we can be political, but we need to know the higher call is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we know something, right? Politics isn't going to change anything. Things are going to stay the same. If you're putting your hope in politics, I'm sorry for you. I feel really sorry for you. Because politics will not change anything. Even when you get your guy in, your guy that you want in, things are not going to go the direction that you want it to go. Because politics are not the answer. That's worldly. They're here in the world. You and I are called to a higher call. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right. So Jesus did not use this to become political. Instead, in verse two, he starts this path down to uh, getting to repentance. He's going to basically say more important than this outrage is whether or not you've repented. In verse two, he says, and Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because you, they suffered such things? It looks like Jesus is going a different direction with it because he talks about you guys think that these Galileans were worse than you. Now, you, it might sound like Jesus is kind of like dodging it or switching things, but these people believed that if something bad happened to you, it was because of something you did. They believed that tragedies in your life were connected to things you did wrong. Listen to what the disciples said to Jesus in John 9, verses 2 and 3. And his disciples said to him, Rabbi... Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? They came across a man who had been born blind and the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned? They didn't even think, was, they didn't ask, was this sin? They simply said, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And when you think about it, okay, we understand his parents. 
Did his parents do something wrong that this guy's born blind? But what about him? What did they think he did? Who sinned? This man that he was born blind? He's really bad in the womb. Really a bad guy in the womb. So he was born blind because of that. Or did they believe something else? I'm, I'm not sure what they would believe about that. Every so often when I teach on sowing and reaping. So the Bible is very clear that as Christians, the way we treat people is the way we're going to be treated. That what we sow to, we're going to reap from. Jesus said, the mercy you give is the mercy you're going to receive. I always say, I need mercy, so I better be a really merciful person. The Bible says, in the manner you judge is the manner that you are going to be judged. So someone came up to me after I taught that not long ago and said, well, that's karma. The Bible is teaching karma. And I said, no, no, you massively misunderstand karma. If you think that karma is you getting today what you did yesterday, you're getting repaid for it or getting back the way you, then you don't understand karma. Karma in Buddhism is you coming back in your next life based upon what you do in this life. So if you have a problem today, it's because of something you did in the past life. It's one of the reasons that in Buddhism, there is not compassion on those who, are, who, who have some kind of a struggle or problem. In fact, they believe that you might not even come back. If you're bad enough, you don't come back as a person. You come back as an animal we eat if you're bad enough. You come back as a cockroach if you're bad enough. You come back as a blind person if you did things wrong in a former life. That's karma. The Bible doesn't teach karma. The Bible teaches the truth that God in interacts with us the way we interact with other people and it's not even in the same ballpark as karma. So they, they thought that something had happened to these Galileans that made them better. So we can see now why Jesus goes to repentance, right? They thought, boy, I'm glad I'm, I didn't do what they did so, so that he didn't mingle my blood. So Jesus says, verse three, I tell you, no, they were not worse than you. Or you think that they were worse because that happened to them? I tell you no. Verse 3. But unless you repent, likewise, uh, unless you repent, well, you, uh, let me read this right. Verse 3. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and, were, and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than any other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? The first account had happened in Galilee. The tower fell over on men in Jerusalem. So Jesus makes a comparison. Do you think those 14 men were worse than other people who lived in Jerusalem? He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So they felt because of the, that they didn't have the, a bad thing happen to them, that they were okay. And Jesus said, the greatest need that you have is a need to repent. Because one day we will all face judgment if we do not repent. Now, Repentance is not only repenting to make a commitment to Christ. Repenting so that you can be saved, born again, so you can receive Christ. Be transformed. Find the life that God has for you. God fills you with the Spirit. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan for you. Repentance is the first step in that process. It always is. It can't happen without it. And we'll talk about why that's the case here momentarily. But also, you may be here and you may have walked with God in the past. And how you find yourself in church today, I'm not quite sure. But God's really good at going after his people. When, when you leave, God goes after you. 
He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. That might be the case for some of you here today. And you may need to repent. That's the first step in coming back. You're a prodigal son. You're a prodigal daughter. You need to repent to come back. And we'll talk about how that works. And there's also a way in which we need to repent regularly. Again, because there's things we don't know about ourselves. We're deceived by sin. We can think we're superior. But Jesus knows he's going to convict us of things. And we're going to realize we need to repent of certain things. Okay, so let's talk repentance. First of all, repentance is not an emotion. You might feel bad about what you've done. There, there might be something in your life and you just feel bad about it. You may cry over it. You may, you may wish you had never done it, but that is not repentance. Repentance can be accompanied with emotion. You may have real true repentance and you may be emotional about it, but it's not the emotion that counts. It's real repentance. Repentance instead, and I want to go over some scriptures for this to show you this, but repentance instead is an act of the will. Repentance is when you are, are convicted of something. This could happen in a church service. It could happen when you're at home. It could happen when a, a tragedy happens in your life. It could happen when you know God's getting your attention. And, and listen, I know when God's trying to get my attention. Something happens and it's like just too much of a, I call it a God of once. It's not a coincidence. It's a God of once. And God's trying to get my attention. Don't close your ears to those moments because God is trying to get your attention to get you to come back. But it, it is an act of your will. In other words, you have a strong desire because of whatever happened to change. That's, that's repentance. All of a sudden you're like, I can't keep living this way. If it's an addiction, then maybe you need to go down a path of getting some help some way. If it's a stronghold, you need to figure out how to fight that stronghold. For some people, that strong will to change is like it can just happen. I, I, I share the story when me and my wife were first married. We got married. We were fairly young. I was 21 and she was 19 when we got married. And um, we had an all, a blowout fight like within the first month. Anybody else have that experience, by the way? All out, screaming, yelling. And I got so angry, I knocked a lamp off the counter and shattered it. Now, today, you call police officers and things like that, they'll arrest you for that, right? Domestic violence, they'll arrest you for shattering something. I don't think it was that way in those days. But I felt extremely ashamed that I'd done it. I felt like my dad, because my dad threw fits like that. And I, I said to Lisa, I'll never do anything like that again. And by the grace of God, I didn't. It was a strong will to change. I didn't want to do that. I was embarrassed that I had done that. Like I said, I was too much like my dad who, who, who quite frankly, I've dealt with hate with him because of his temper. And that was, a, that was an example of a, of a moment in a will. And it wasn't my willpower that allowed me to be able to overcome it. It was a repentance. It was a, a strong desire to change and then making a commitment to God and God helping me to be able to overcome it. So there are, are two, there's Greek words for, there's two Hebrew words for repent and there's one Greek word for repent. They help us to get an understanding of them. The, the Greek word literally means to change your mind. So you just change your mind about something and it doesn't necessarily mean about something bad. This Greek word for repent is often used as people changing their mind. I was gonna paint my house brown, I even bought the paint, but I repented and I bought green paint. Don't paint your house green unless you want to, but maybe seafoam, right? Uh, but you repented, for, and that's all that it means in the Greek. 
In the Hebrew, it's connected to sin. In the Hebrew, it's changing your mind about a sin. But in Greek, it's not. It's just changing your mind. You just change your mind. And that's a good connection to when you become a Christian. You're like, I'm not living for this anymore. Whatever it is in your life that you're living for, but I am now going to live for God. I'm going to live for the one who created me. I'm going to find out what his plan, his goal, his desire is for me, and I'm going to start living for him. The Hebrew word, uh, there's two of them, but one of them means to turn around. Just turn around. It's a pivot. I'm pivoting from the world and I'm turning towards God. That's repentance. Someone said, if you're walking down the street and a street preacher is yelling to repent, repent, just turn around and go the other way because that's what he's telling you to do. <laughs> Maybe you want to do that anyway if you stumble across that thing. So um, the word repent is used in the Old and the New Testament, depending on the, the uh, translation, 70 to 100 times in the Old Testament. The, the words for repent are found over 100 times but two Hebrew words and one Greek word over a hundred times. So it's a substantial theme in the Bible. The Greek word, uh, the key, let's start with the Hebrew words. And the, these Hebrew words are hard to pronounce. Hebrew has this thing in it, the, 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 right? It's the spit noise really is what it is. So I listened to these words a couple of times in Hebrew, listening to them. And then I tried to say them and realized I'm no good at, at Hebrew pronunciation. But the first word is spelled. Let me give you the spelling first. It's N-A-C-H-A-M. And I listen to it, you know, because you can you pull it up and you can listen to it in Hebrew. And it is Nachem. 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 I'm telling you, it sounds worse than that. Uh, so I know I'm butchering it. But that means a strong desire to change. And that may be one of the most helpful Hebrew words for us. When there's something wrong in our lives, we can kind of not even think about it. We can go on and we cannot be doing it, but then something happens and suddenly you realize, I need to change this. I cannot live for this anymore. And I've got to think every one of you has had that experience, whether a believer or not, where you know, I need to change this. You, maybe you know it's destructive behavior. Maybe someone got hurt because of it. You don't want to hurt someone because of it. Whatever it is, you have a strong desire to change. That's what that Hebrew word means. Then there's a word, S-H-U-B, I would pronounce it shub, but in Hebrew, it's like shub, shub. I can't even do it. Uh, and it means to change your mind towards sin. That's why it said that Hebrew, it's connected to sin. It's not like the Greek word that's just to change your mind. It means that there's some sin in your life and you need to change your mind towards that sin. The Greek word, is, this is much easier to pronounce, is netamoia or metanoia. Metanoia. I say it's easy to pronounce and then I butcher it. Um, and it means a change of mind, purpose, or action. So it just simply means that you change. Like I said, you're painting your house one color, you paint it another color. You're living your life for yourself, you're going to live your life for God now. That's what repentance is. And it is the very beginning process in making a commitment to Christ. You have a strong desire to change, and so you receive Him and you believe. John 1, 12, let me read you this verse. John 1, 12 and 13 says, but as many as receive him, to him he gave the right to become a child of God. By the time you receive him, you've already repented. You have to have a strong desire to change before you receive him. It says, as many as receive him, to them he becomes, gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. So you repent, you receive and you believe, resulting in you being a child of God. 
resulting in you given eternal life, resulting in your spirit being brought to life and you being transformed and becoming that new person. So Jesus tells these people, you need to repent or similar things are going to happen to you. Let me give you a couple of verses that help us with repentance because there's another part of repentance we should talk about and that is the concept of confession. Confessing my sin. So let me, let me read you um, Psalms 32 first to get an idea of what this is all about. David, of course, was a man after God's own heart. But when he was in his late 50s, he walked out on his balcony and he looked over the edge and he saw a woman taking a bath. And I don't know what her, how she's complicit in this story. It's hard to tell. He's a king who wants to have sex with this woman. So he brings this woman up. Whether or not she's complicit in it, we don't know. But she's called by the king. He ends up killing her husband. And it is a, I lost my notes. Oh, I'm, they're back. Uh, he ends up killing her husband and taking her into his harem and looking like the hero. He had done this horrible thing and then he looked like the hero in the end. And that's kind of what men do. It's what we do. We'll do something wrong and we'll try to come out looking like a hero. But it got exposed. And so David now, this Psalms 32 is David praying about this exposure of his sin and the end result of that exposure. Probably the worst moment for him when it was exposed, but he found out it was the very best thing that could happen to him. Listen to what he says. This is Psalms 32, one through five. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. Whoever sin is covered, um, whose sin is covered, blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. He's talking about how blessed it is that our sins are forgiven, that God removes them from us. He says, and whose spirit there is no deceit. He knew there had been deceit in his life. And he says, just get rid of the deceit, that there's a blessing when you get rid of the deceit. He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old, my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. See, God has always working with us to get these things out of our lives. Your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was dried up like the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin and my iniquity I have not hidden. So he came to the place where he acknowledged his sin to God. He said, God, I did this. And he said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. There's confession. And he forgave the iniquity of my sin. So part of repentance is this confession to God. It's not a confession to a religious leader. It's a confession to God. You are confessing your sin. Listen to what the Bible says in John uh, 1 John 1, 8 through 10, talking about confession. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He wanted to get that out right away. I have had people tell me, I, I, I don't sin anymore. And I wish I was really sharp. You ever walk away from things and go, I should have said that. After I walked away from them, I thought I should have told them, well, you blew it now. You know, I always think of things, you know, a day late. But, um, he says, if you say you have no sin, well, he says, um, if we could, uh, where are we at now? The uh, okay, the truth is in any, then verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This has got to be more than just saying, God, I sinned. If someone has an affair on his wife, comes to her and says, I'm sorry. I know this hurts you. I feel really bad about it. I'm so sorry. And I'll see you tonight because I'm going to go visit her. You go, well, that's confession of sin. 
But that's not repentance. Repentance has to be realizing it, that strong desire to change, and then confessing your sin before God. So when you are convicted about something, you confess it. And then it says, it goes on to say, just to reiterate, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the true word and, um, and his word is not in us. So he just wants to kind of, he sandwiches this confession with sin that everybody needs it. Those who say that you can't sin, that you don't sin, everybody needs this sin. Now, Jesus is telling them to repent and, and everybody needs that. As I said, maybe because you want to come to Christ, maybe because you need to return to Christ, maybe because you've just got things in your life you need to change and repentance is the step towards that. So Jesus tells a parable now and the parable looks disconnected, but it's not. In verse six, he says, he also spoke a parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit and found none. He's talking about the life of a believer or Israel, because the fig tree often, not always, but often represents Israel and how there was no fruit with the nation of Israel. But that's for a whole nother study. We're going to talk about repentance today. And so he's talking about us. He's talking about that when he comes to our life and he doesn't find fruit, what does God do? Fruit is the evidence that you really have a relationship with Christ. Fruit is the evidence that things are right. So he says he found none of, on this. And then verse seven, then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years, I have come seeking fruit of this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it take up the ground? But he answered and said to him, and the, the keeper of the vineyard is Jesus. Sir, let me let it alone this year until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after you can cut it down. So this is Jesus saying, I, I go after my sheep and I'm going to take, I'm going to, I'll do what I have to do. And sometimes cultivating the ground around us is not fun. And you've got to be able to identify when God's coming after you. When I was, I met the Lord when I was almost 14 years old. I was 13 and I met the Lord and I lived for him for five years and it was a good relationship with God. I'd gone from the Methodist church I got saved into an Assembly of God church that I was, that I had been attending. And one Sunday I went into that Assembly of God church. I was 18 years old and there was somebody else preaching and I sat down by one of my friends. I leaned over and I said, where's Pastor Bob? And he whispered back to me that Bob had, Pastor Bob had had an affair and they'd removed him and this was our new pastor. I was devastated, as was our church, by the way. I, I saw firsthand the devastation of a scandal inside of a church. And I, I went home and I called a friend of mine who had been a mentor and his wife told me that he had had an affair and had left him. And I had said, and, and I had some problems. I wouldn't have responded this way if I didn't have problems in my life. I'm not blaming them. I know that I had problems in my life, but I said, if this is what Christianity is about, I don't want it. And I, and I, and I walked away from God. And my friends came to try to get me. And, and I, would, I was like, I'd spit venom at them. They'd come and tell me, you need to come back to church. I'd say, why? These kind of things go on in the church. Why would I want to be a part of that? And so pretty soon they're like, ooh, okay. We'll just leave Robert alone. Well, at 18 years old also, it culminated with another thing that happened in my life. My father had passed away of Lou Gehrig's disease when I was 13. And at 18, I had access to money that was set aside for me. And all of a sudden, I, all of a sudden this 18-year-old had money he hadn't worked for. So I bought a motorcycle, a Camaro, and a Jeep. It's exactly what an 18-year-old would do. Comes into money, he's like, I'm buying a motorcycle. And yet it wasn't all on the same day. But I, that's what I ended up doing. And um, I w was also walking away from God. 
And I, God came after me. This experience in my life, God just came after me. And I can see that clearly now. There are people today that are walking away from Christ because of a lot of scandals in the church today. And I th God's going to come after you. And he clearly did for me. First thing that he did was take the Jeep away from me. It was a 1977 Jeep. This is in 1978. I, I purchased it. Uh, I, I didn't pay cash for it. I bought it and made payments. We were down at Elephant Butte, four-wheeling, and I decided that it would be fun to go off-road, literally off-road, and just go across, you know, some beach. And I ran into a barbed wire fence. And I had put a new carburetor on, it was a 304 V8. If you guys that know motors will understand, I put a 600 double-pumper Holley carburetor on it which was way too much carburation for a 304 motor. And I put a street carb on it. A four-wheel drive carb has floats in a different direction so it doesn't flood the motor while you're jostling it. And I had put a street carb on it so it covered the motor in gas. When it ran into the barbed wire fence, it exploded. The it caught on fire. It didn't explode. It was like... <laughs> I get onto my Jeep and I'm standing on the beach and the whole, like, just burns up. The whole thing burns up. And I didn't have insurance. I was 18 years old. <laughs> I found out that a junkyard wouldn't even take it because I owed money on it. So they towed it to a junkyard and the junkyard said, you got to get this car out of here. It's yours. You, you owe money on it. So I had to have this burnt up Jeep sitting around until it got paid off and then I could haul it to the junkyard. The second thing that God does was, did was take away my driver's license. I shouldn't say God did it. I got a lot of tickets because I had my, my 68 Camaro uh, was a 327 sm small block with a Muncie M22 tranny, if you guys know trannies. And it had a 308 rear end and that thing got up and went. And I drag race it a lot and I could beat any of the big blocks, any of the Mopars, any of the goats, you know, with our big motors. They'd get me at the end, but I, off the line, I'd tear them up. And I got tickets and just like that car went up and so did my license. Then I got caught driving without a license. So they brought me before the judge. And the judge, I, here I, I'm, I'm 18 years old. I'm 120 pounds soaking wet. And I'm standing before the judge and he gets my record and he's like. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to give you jail time. And I, and I said, I have a job. And he said, I'll give you work release. So he gave me work release. So the first day that I went in, we, 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 we get it there. It was supposed to be there by eight. So I get there at eight. They don't take us in until like one in the morning to, to the jail. This is jail, not prison. Okay, this is jail. It's the Albuquerque jail. Doesn't make it better, by the way. Um, and uh, when we get in, we put on our jumpsuits. Okay. And now we're, we all get to stand in line. We're going to let us in to where we're going to have dinner. And he says to the first guy, strip and, and squat down. And I'm like, I'm on this side of the line. And I'm like, and he says to the next guy, strip and squat down. He's coming closer to me. True story. Again, I'm 18 years old. I look like I'm 12. Okay. And he, he walks up to me and goes, never mind. And moves on to the next guy. <laughs> True story. He must have saw the absolute terror in my face of stripping down in jail in front of people. And it was like, <laughs> on top of that, my motorcycle was stolen. I'll spare you that story. I did have insurance on it, so it got paid off, but I didn't have a motorcycle anymore.
and my girlfriend broke up with me. So at 18 years old, I found my identity in the car and the motors, the cars and motorcycles I drove and having a girlfriend and all of that was gone. When the girlfriend, my girlfriend broke up with me, she told me basically, I don't want to see you anymore. I didn't have a car. So she was like, just take my car and go home. She didn't want to see me anymore and she didn't want to have to take me home. So she was like, I'll get my car later, go. So I'm driving home and I turn the radio over to, I'm just, now I'm, I'm kind of distraught as I'm driving. And I turn the, the radio over to K-Lite, which is, was the Christian radio station in Albuquerque. It was the rock station or the top 40 Christian music station. And there's a, this is 1978. And there's a song on there by Chuck Gerard of Love Song called Little Pilgrim. And this is God's moment. I mean, it's just like, I turn it on over there, that song's on. And it says, Little Pilgrim walking down the road of life. Can't you see that there are many others who are just like you? And they take a little turn to the left and they see what that road has to offer them, but they have to make it back to the main road anyhow. And you've got all that lost time to make up for. And it's a sad thing when you realize you're all alone again. And I, I just driving down the freeway, just began to cry. And the last line in the song says, and it's a glad thing when you realize you found your way back home again. And so I got home and I got ready for bed and I laid down and I, I still remember the prayer I prayed. Okay, Lord, I'm done. No longer what I want, but whatever you want. I'll live my life for you. See, the problem before I, I walked away from God, I, I believe God was helping me in my life. I had plans, I had desires, God was helping me. When I returned, it was now, you're the Lord, I live, I'm gonna live wholeheartedly for you. Just really quickly, I went to a couple of churches, good churches, they were Assembly of God churches. I'd come out of that when I when I'd backslidden and I went back to it when I came back. And um, nothing against the churches, it was good, good churches, good teaching, good worship, but I didn't feel anything. I just sat in church and felt nothing. And I can be honest with you, I felt like God was saying to me, you went too far. You've done too much, I can't forgive you. I was already full of shame and guilt coming back to Christ. I I'd swore I'd never walk away from him. I judged people who walked away from him and then I walked away from him. And um, a buddy of mine called after those two experiences and told me, this is my cruise buddy, I'm backslidden, all right? And uh, like you guys would cruise Eastdale, I mean, cruise Speedway, if you did, some of you guys. Uh, we would cruise Eastdale. And a buddy of mine called me up, who was a cruise buddy, and he said, Robert, I got saved. He had no idea I knew what he was talking about. And I was like, what? Because I got saved, you got to go to church with me. And we went to this little, crazy, charismatic church called The Answer on Trumbull in Albuquerque. And when we walked in, there were people slain in the spirit on the floor. And we had to walk over them to get in. And I already knew this stuff wasn't right. But I'm, I'm stepping over people to get in. And I go and I sit down and they start playing music. And God says to me in my heart, not audibly, it's time to come home, son. And I started to cry. I wish that I could cry like, like some of you guys. Some of you guys are cool criers. Some preachers are cool criers. They get into a sermon, they start to cry. And they're just kind of like, they preach and tears are coming down and it's like so moving. When I, when I get choked up, when I'm teaching and it happens, I always collect myself. I'm like, oh, sorry, sorry. Because I ugly cry. It's not pretty at all. 
And I realized that and nobody needs to see that. And I, but I don't know what they thought when they saw me. Nobody talked to me. I'm sitting in a pew. Worship's going on. Everybody's just excited to worship. And I'm bawling. And people are like, I've heard of laughing in the Spirit, but never crying in the Spirit. So they, but God full on brought me back. He brought me back in. He put a robe on my back and a ring on a finger. He embraced me. I think the experience in churches was God saying to me, what you've done is serious. You have left me and you are going to drink every drop of bitterness that comes from leaving me, from walking away from me. And God made me drink all of that until he brought me back again. And when I came back, I came back full on. God began to move in my life. God filled me with the spirit. God began to do work. Immediately, God began to use me again. And it was extremely powerful. Now, I share that story with you because he came and dug around my roots. And I ended up producing fruit because of him. And maybe something's happening in your life now. Maybe you've walked away and there's something happening in your life now and you just need to identify it as Jesus. He's rooting around in the ground. He knew he had to take everything away from me to bring me back. I often wonder why I couldn't go the opposite. Why couldn't he give me a bunch of stuff to bring me back? But I guess it doesn't work that way, right? The more stuff you get, they're probably not interested in God. He took everything away from me until I could see him clearly. And I believe there are some of you that God's doing the same thing. And so at the end of this, and I need to pray now, um, at the end of this, I think there's a couple people who need to repent, um, maybe more. Some that need to want to give their lives to Christ, you have a strong desire to change and, and receive Christ and, and find out what the Christian life is all about. Um, there's some of you that need to come back. And some Christians, you just got something in your life that's not right. God's revealed that to you today. And there needs to be a confession and a repentance, a strong desire to change. And there will be change when you, when you do repent. So stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that we're able to spend time talking about repentance. Uh, we pray that, that we would understand it and that we would ask you regularly to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.